listening to Miscarriage Stories with Arden Cartrett. All right. Kelly, I really want to start, um, whenever I talk to people about their experience with pregnancy loss, a lot of people will start when they first met their partner or the moment they first knew they wanted to be a parent. Do you have a moment or maybe for your entire life, you've always been like, I want to be a dad, but do you have any distinct moments of like, knowing you wanted to be a dad? Yes. So for me, it's been, it started off as thinking that I would never be a dad for Mm. a variety of different reasons. Uh, My relationship. So I always knew I wanted to be a dad, but I always thought that maybe that's not in it for me because at the time that I felt really strongly about becoming a dad, I was, my life was just in in shambles. Uh, My relationship at that time a uh, relationship of seven years with my ex-fiance that went down the drain in the most heartbreaking, dramatic, ugly, messy type of way. Uh, all of my friends were getting married and they were starting their families. And so for a period of like a decade, I'm just watching people who I'm older than, uh, people who are my same age, just like doing their thing. And so I'm the single uncle of all of my friends' kids. And I'm just like, man, maybe this is what my life is going to be like. So I just started to settle into that possibility that, yeah, I'm not going to find someone to settle down with and I'm not going to have children because I didn't want to have children out of wedlock. Um, So it was just like, yeah, okay, that's that's not going to happen. And that went on for a good decade or so after I graduated college, which was the time that I thought, you know, I would start settling down with my then relationship. Yeah. And I I know that where I am in North Carolina, it's very normal that at 22 to 24 years old, you are starting to have a family. You're getting married, you're having kids. And so in early twenties, there are a lot of people around you who are starting to do those things. Um, and then I imagine being engaged, you have this whole vision of what life is going to look like with this person. And then you're now grieving that relationship, but also what you thought your family would look like, which is really difficult. Yeah. So what's fascinating about that period of time is that it was the perfect storm of everything that could have possibly gone wrong. So I graduated Mm -hmm. college in 2007 And right 2008, that's when the housing market crashed. And so the economic backdrop of our society was just not ideal for me to get a job. So here I am coming from this liberal arts college. I don't have a specific skill set. You know, I just invested all this money into this piece of paper and people sold me on the possibility of, you know, the name of this school is going to open doors for you. And it's like, ain't no doors opening. So that's happening. And then the relationship went south because of my doing and her doing. And it just got really ugly, really messy very quickly. So that started to go south. And then my father left 
again. So then all of that just happened within the same amount of time, maybe like in a two year time span, I went from graduating to not having a job to my father leaving to my relationship with my ex-fiance just completely down the drain. So it was really a tumultuous moment in my life. Um, I can look back now and say, I am so thankful that we did not get married and we did not start a family, not because of who she is, but looking back in hindsight, we were not ready. Like I, well, I can't speak for her. I was not ready to assume that level of responsibility for a spouse, for children. So had I had children and that time, I don't think it would have been, I don't think I would have the same outlook as I do now that things have drastically changed for the better, you know, since that time period. Yeah, that makes sense. And from the point of all of the horrible things happening in your life and then meeting your now wife, how long was that span of time? So the backstory to that backstory (laughs) (laughs) is that I've always known my wife. So, oh, yeah, we, we've always known each other. Uh, our family's stories date back to when both of our moms were teenagers in Haiti and when they wow. knew each other. And so life had a way of keeping both families in the same places at the same times without any coordination between the families. So their relationship, you know was solid enough that as they grew up and over the years and got married and whatnot, they still had some type of rapport. And there was a period where there was a mass migration of Haitians all throughout South America. And one of the hot spots was Venezuela. So her parents ended up going to Venezuela. My uh, mom ended up going to Venezuela. Now, in terms of timeline as to whether or not they were married like her parents were married or not I'm not sure what the details of that story are my mom and my father met each other in Venezuela and so that's where uh, I was born and although we moved back to Haiti for a period of time we ended up going back to Venezuela and one of the places that now my in-laws are telling me, yeah, we remember when you guys came back to Venezuela and you guys stayed at our house. And I I have no recollection of that. So that's always been the flavor of the dynamic of both of our families. We moved from Venezuela to the United States and we both families ended up finding themselves in Brooklyn, New York. From Brooklyn, we moved to Philadelphia and both families ended up finding themselves in Philadelphia, which, which is where we now live. So I've always had a friendship with my wife. Uh, the other day we were at her parents' house and I was showing my mother-in-law pictures of when she and I and my sisters and some common friends, we were young, a picture that we took on a Saturday afternoon after church at a park across the street from the church where we used to go to. And, you know, she's identifying some of the other kids that we haven't seen in decades now. So we've always had that rapport. We've always had that friendship. It got a little weird when I approached her and I said, hey, I'm interested in you in more than a friendship way. (laughs) Um, She very quickly put me in the brother zone, which I found very offensive. (laughs) 
course. <laughs> but that's because we had we we've known each other like that. Um, but obviously now we're two children in and I tell people it's not a matter of bragging and it's not a matter of like, you know, tuning my own horn, but being married to someone like my wife, whom I've known for such a long period of time makes marriage easy because we can relate to each other. We have, we, we come from a similar background, almost identical We've had similar experiences. We've lived similar experiences, even though life trajectory took us in, in different ways. And in terms of our family dynamics, her parents have always been together. So she comes more from a structured home and mine has just been chaos. So that helps us understand how to relate now that we're in a relationship, because when things get chaotic, that's when I'm comfortable. When things are fine and structured, that's where she's comfortable. So then we're able to rely on each other in those moments to get our family forward. I, I love that. And that's how me and my husband are, where he is from a very, like, parents have been together. They call each other baby. They, like, kiss. They're very in love yeah. after however many years. And then my family life has just always been uh, pretty horrible. And so we, it, the difference is really helpful because um, it keeps us kind of, like, evening each other out. Because I, I do really well in chaos. Yes. And he does not. So it's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So being with your wife, um, when did you, did you, well, it sounds like you always wanted a family. And so I assume that once you guys started dating and you got married, you were like, okay, let's do this because I love you and I want to have a family. Yeah. Is that kind of how it went? Yeah. So as we were dating, we started talking about what life would be like. I remember she said to me at one point, very poignantly, Hey, if we're going to do this, like we're going to do this for real. And that's all she needed to say. We were taking this seriously because of the history of our families, like we wanted to make sure that we were making the right decision. So in the midst of all of this dating, we dated secretly for a year just so that we could find out if this was going to work or not without compromising how our families related to each other. So we kept that in mind. And during that secret year of dating, we had very honest and open conversations about family and children and she always wanted children. Like I said, I always wanted to have children. Now that I'm with this person, the possibility of having children, you know, that excitement was beginning to reignite. And um, I wanted to have three kids. I think she just wanted to have more than one because she was a single child for a good decade or so before her little brother came. So she was like, I don't want that for, for our kids. And once... You know, you see someone up close and personal as a friend and you have a different perspective of who they are. You start to get into a more intimate relationship with them then you see that person in a different way. And so I think we we're both um, studying each other. We we're both learning about each other to determine if we would be like, do I want her to be the mother of my kids? Does she want me to be the father of her children? And it was just a natural fit. I mean, everything just sort of felt perfectly in place and we both knew we just wanted to to have kids so the moment we got married it was a matter of yeah we're we're not we don't need to wait for you know three years down the line or whatever the case is we're ready to start having kids right away and that's what we started doing and from 
deciding that to your first pregnancy, about how long of trying to conceive that first pregnancy did it take? So we got married in 2018. And I believe when she first told me we were expecting it was in 2019. Yeah. Yeah. It was in 2019. And so in the process of trying to conceive, and this is, you know, why we are having this conversation of like the male perspective, but me as a female asking these questions is because on the female side of that, there's ovulation tracking. There's like knowing that you can test after so many days. Were you in that as much as she was, or it was just kind of like, I know that we are having sex unprotected and I'm just waiting to learn that we are pregnant. I'm healthy. You're healthy. There's no reason why this can't happen. So, you know, we're not, like you said, we're having sex unprotected. There's no, but she was more on the tracking her ovulation. And so at first I was going along with it because I knew how important this was to the both of us. And she wanted to make sure that, you know, we caught the right window and all of that stuff. I'm never going to say no to having sex with my wife. Like, that's just not going to happen. But it got to a point where she, I remember this one time, she, she tracked, she was tracking her ovulation and she found out what the, the window was. And she was like, Hey, we need to have, like, we need to do this now, like on this day. And I was like, man, that's a, I love you. Like, I'm not going to say no to you, but that's a lot of pressure because then it started to feel like a performance. It started to feel like work. And I think that night I was like, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm ready to, I don't think I want to have sex with you because I, I just don't feel like, I don't feel that intimate connection. I feel like this is the means to an end and it almost feels like I'm being used. Not that that's what it just felt like. And, and, um, yeah. So that whole, that whole time period of first trying to, to conceive, there were those moments where I'm like, I understand that we want to have kids, but now it's starting to feel very laborious. You know, it's just, there's just too much of, of, a pressure and just too much of, a trying to control something that innately just feels like it's not meant to be controlled. Like it it is out of our control to the extent of aside from doing the act, we don't have a say as to what happens afterwards. So that, that was the part of the tension that I felt at that time while we were trying to, to conceive. And it's funny because, you know, knowing that we're going to be cross-posting this, so my audience will obviously hear this, where a lot of them are probably thinking, like, oh, I had that same fight with my husband, where I was like, no, we have to have sex today, and he's telling me that he can't do it, or he's not, you know, that he's feeling um, used. I know my husband used that word Mm. multiple times because I was like, no, we have this window and I care about nothing but making it in this window. And so it's so interesting to hear the other side of that where now you as a male are saying that is how you felt. And I I know a lot of women listening have heard that from their partner and it was hard to empathize. And so I hope that hearing your side of it helps them empathize a little bit more because it is, um, it is different of, of knowing the tracking and knowing what your body feels like and then just telling your husband, okay, 
we have to have sex on these days. You know, they, it, while having sex is not, um, probably forced and, and like you're saying, you would jump at the chance to have sex with your wife. It is really hard to be told that there are specific days. It's not just like in, in the heat of the moment type of thing. Yes. And that is a real thing. I don't know if outside of the context of that man and his woman, that man would agree to, there's just a lot of pressure, but uh, there was a lot of pressure and I just didn't feel that emotional connection uh, with my wife. And there were like the first couple of times when, you know, we were trying to hit the, the, the proper window as she would have it. There were a couple of times where, in the act, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, obviously I'm having a good time because I'm having sex with my wife. But in the back right. of my mind, I'm also thinking of so many other thoughts. Like, I can't even tell you what they, they are at the moment, but it's like I'm not connected to her as I would want to be connected. So, yeah, I could check off. I had sex with my wife today. Awesome. And you know what? Next <laughs> week or maybe the next day she's going to say, hey. The window's still open. She's going to say, hey, the window's still open and we need to have sex again. Great. I'm having sex with my wife back to back days. Awesome. I'm living the dream. But it's not really that because we're trying to get pregnant. And so it now becomes like I clock in and clock out from work. I get home. Now I got to clock in to try to have a kid and then clock out to then try to. So it just felt to, like I said before, trying to control something that is none of our business to control in that way. Yeah, no, I hear you. And so your first pregnancy, um, how did she tell you that you were pregnant? How did you feel? How t- walk me through that first pregnancy. So we're eating and she says, hey, I have a present for you. And in the interest of full transparency, this is a moment that I am going to have to hold my own feet to the fire. Early on in our marriage, we used to buy each other gifts randomly. So her saying she had a gift for me was not out of the ordinary. Over the years, I've stopped doing that, and therefore she stopped doing that. So this is a perfect opportunity to hold my own feet to the fire, to reignite that again. So thank you, Arden, for this opportunity. (laughs) Um, so we're sitting at the table and she says, Hey, I have a gift for you. And she comes out with a little uh, gift bag and I'm like, Oh, great. So in my head, I'm thinking, Oh man, I haven't bought her anything. So now I got to go buy her something. Right. So I'm opening the gift and I pull out this onesie and the onesie says, you're going to be a dad. And I just looked at her and I was like, you're joking. And she just, even though you had been trying to conceive. Even though trying to conceive this whole time. And she just smiled at me and she was like, I wouldn't joke about that. And I just jumped up. I screamed like a soprano, like a like a tenor one. And I ran around the house just holding the onesie, just screaming. And then I sat back down and I gave her a hug and we kissed and it was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. So it was that night and for the rest of the time until we went to get the pregnancy confirmed, I slept with that onesie either on my pillow or underneath my pillow 
because I already felt some sense of connection to this being that hadn't even been here yet. <laughs> but through the onesie, it was like, yeah, this onesie is not going anywhere. So one time I came home from work and then I just went straight up to, to our bedroom and I looked at my pillow and I didn't see the onesie. And I was like, what'd you do with the onesie? And she's like, I just put it in the drawer somewhere. I was like, don't touch my onesie, please. Just, <laughs> just don't touch it. Just leave it right here where I put it. And so I would come home from work and it would be on the pillow. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like I said, until, until we went to get that pregnancy confirmed, that onesie was, was right there. So I do want to say this along the way, and I forget if it was during a conversation with someone. I've had this conversation with a friend before, and he remembered me saying that it was a doctor who said this to me. So it might have been around the time that we did go and get the pregnancy confirmed. Someone said, don't be surprised if the first pregnancy doesn't stick in those exact words. Wow. And I didn't understand the value of those words. I didn't understand the impact of those words until afterward. So just to move the story forward ahead, when we went to get the pregnancy confirmed, then it seemed like things were not as they should have been. But in the back of my mind, that's already the expectation. If this one doesn't stick, it just it just doesn't stick. There's no big deal. It just obviously is not supposed to stick because it happens quite often in the first one, according to the expectation that this person set. And so we went and the pregnancy was not viable. And I went with my wife to uh, get a DNC and I waited for her. And she came out, and that was the first time that I did not recognize the person that I was waiting for, who I was waiting for, because my wife is not someone who is outwardly expressive or emotive or anything like that. In our relationship, I'm the more vibrant one. Like, I can't shut up. You drop me in the middle of a room of strangers and I will come out of there with at least 10 people and five of which will have my number. I'll have their number. We'll know each other's life stories. And the next time I see them, we'll be like, we've known each other for the, for our whole lives. My wife is the exact opposite. So to see her come out of that procedure and she could barely walk she felt really uncomfortable and the ride back to the house was so quiet. It was a different type of quiet. And we got home and she just went upstairs and laid down and she didn't say a word to me. And so while she is experiencing that in the back of my mind, my expectation is founded on don't be surprised if the first pregnancy doesn't stick. So I'm not surprised because the first pregnancy didn't stick. Conclusion, what's the big deal if that was the expectation? We'll just try again. Honestly, 
for as challenging as part of it was more sex for us. And I just could not connect to what she was experiencing. I just couldn't relate to why she was taking it so hard. It didn't, the, the pieces of that puzzle didn't connect in my mind. Um, not that I thought that she was being unreasonable or overly dramatic or any of that stuff. I just didn't understand why she was taking it that hard when there was a higher probability of the first pregnancy not sticking. So the had, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to ask if she had heard that same, you know, phrase or or warning about the first pregnancy. I believe so because if it is true that it was a doctor who said those words, then those words were said to the both of us at the same time. The way that so my wife is a nurse by training, so she has a different way of she has a different exposure to medical stuff. Uh, even though she doesn't work with, um, you know, um, like conception or she, she does other stuff, but still part of the training is, you know, you get exposed to that sort of information. So the way she, this, this probably was not new news to her. For me, this was the first time that I came upon the probability, the awareness of the likelihood of the first pregnancy not being viable or in the words of this person not sticking. But I just came out of a decade of seeing all of my friends who got married upon their first pregnancy. Like they right. they never spoke about loss. They never spoke about miscarriage. They never spoke about, fertility issues. They never spoke about any of that stuff. So whether or not they had gone through multiple losses themselves, from my perspective, they got married, bang, bang, shorty's pregnant. And my man is now a dad. So I'm sure it must have happened on the first try because nobody is sharing anything else. So not only did I not have any exposure to any of the trials and difficulties surrounding just conceiving, let alone pregnancy loss as part of the process of trying to grow one's family. And then these words just sort of set the expectation that, oh, this is something that happens all the time. So in terms of the emotional ramifications or the emotional investment in response to that happening, that's really not a big deal. And honestly, Arden, like that's where I was operating from. What's ironic about this whole thing is that professionally, I provide emotional, spiritual support to people who are experiencing really devastating circumstances. These are complete strangers that I have to connect with immediately without even knowing what they're going through. But I couldn't do the same thing with my wife because of the expectation that the first pregnancy was not supposed to stick. So I just, I, I just don't get it. So one time we were getting ready to go to work 
And at that point, she hadn't said much to me in several days. And I was, I mean, I'm creating all sorts of narratives in my mind and all sorts of assumptions. And I was not the most loving person to her in that during that time period. And out of nowhere, I just blew up at her. And I was like, listen to me, man. Like I came from a relation, I came from a family where my father and my mother didn't have good communication and they didn't talk and they always treated each other with the silent treatment. And you're doing this to me like this is not what I want for my family. And it was all about me because that's honestly all I thought was important at that time. Like she was doing this to me. She was not talking to me. She was keeping me out for something that didn't seem so didn't seem like a big deal given the expectation that was set in my mind. Right. And she just broke down crying and she was like, I just need you to back off and just give me some time. Like, and she just laid into me in a way that since then she has not. And I learned my lesson at that time. Um, and uh, when she started talking, it was the classic male tucking his tail between his legs and is like, oh, I had been just considering my own, you know, little world, but you have your own thing that's going on. And I was not even aware of any of that. So I shamefully tucked my tail between my legs. I gave her some space and over time, we were able to to talk about it and work through it. And I apologize to her for how it's sensitive and unthoughtful and all of that stuff that I was to her at the time. And we were able to work through it and, and move on or move forward. I like move forward. Yeah. And, and I think um, as a male in that situation, and I'm thinking about it now from, from your wife's point of view, after DNC, you're still bleeding, you have cramping, your uterus has to go back to its original size. There's a lot of physical stuff happening. Were you aware of the physical aspects that she was experiencing in those few days that she was silent or you were just like, the loss is over. So we just need to go back to normal. I was not aware of any of that stuff. I didn't even know what a DNC was. So when she came out and she was, I knew it was a procedure. So, and I figure, you know, just kind of putting the pieces together, something happening inside of her that they had to go in and take out. I didn't go as far as trying to research what a DNC was or none of that. Like none of that seemed to me like a necessity at the time. It was the first pregnancy didn't stick. We have to get this thing in you out and you know, give it a couple of time, let it rest, and we'll try again. Yeah. Sounds like a simple, uh, like a, a simple way of looking at pregnancy loss in a way, uh, which I'm sure you look back and it's sad that you didn't see all of those other parts of it. Um, but, you know, I can understand going in with that expectation. And then we're also told by doctors, oh, this is common. This happens to so many people. Just keep moving on. And so you're almost gaslit into thinking it's not a big deal. Yes. 
And so then you just push it aside and you just keep going. Um, and, 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 and I want to say something, right information. exactly at that, that's the point that I wanted to make right there. Or one of the points, because the other part is the way that this conversation can be had or the way that this conversation is had rather really sets the tone for the couple who is in this trying to conceive or trying to, to get pregnant, right? Those words, those specific words were so harmful. They were so stupid for a professional to say those words. And even though I'm having difficulty remembering who specifically said it, where exactly we were, what I have not forgotten are those specific words. Don't be surprised if the first pregnancy does not stick. That combination of words is just the most absurd, the most callous, the coldest, the most insensitive and unprofessional way to begin having such a delicate conversation with people who presumably, and it was true in our case, at least in my case, didn't didn't think that it was important or even necessary, rather not even important, that it was necessary to look into all of the factors that it takes to conceive one life. Right. And yeah. when I tell you that set the tone like that set the tone for how I mishandled that first miscarriage experience. And had it not been for the strength of who my wife is and for the strength of our commitment to each other for better or worse, like that could have been a really decisive moment in our relationship that could have gone entirely a different direction. So I don't even, I, I can't take any credit for my wife still trusting me with her body all these other times later, just for us to have two kids, because the way that I did not respect her grief and the experience of her body after that first miscarriage, I would not have blamed her if she withheld her body from me for the rest of our relationship. Like I, I looking back now, I wouldn't I could not blame that. I can't blame that if that's what she decided to do. But the fact that she still trusted me and she still was willing for us to give ourselves to each other in that way, in that intimate way, so that we could continue to grow our family, it, it speaks to who she is as a person. Yeah, that's powerful. Thanks for sharing that. That's a great, um, it sucks that hindsight has given you that perspective. Um, but it is also, I think it's a really big lesson in these big, hard things that you go through as a couple. And it, it sucks because although miscarriage is quote unquote common, you know, it's still something that not everybody has to go through in their relationship. And so there is no guidebook on how to navigate the differences in grief. Right. Uh, sometimes whenever I'm talking with people, I explain that, um, 
a pregnant woman and her partner will experience the same loss, but they experience it so differently that they can't relate to each other. And so then they just don't communicate. They get mad that the other one cannot relate instead of just maybe supporting each other almost like it's a separate loss for each of you. Um, I know my husband and I struggled with the same thing. He wanted to go play golf on the day I was supposed to take the medication Mm. to um, help me miscarry at home. And I remember thinking to him or saying to him, like, how could you leave me on this day? And he was like, well, it's not going to be that bad. That's what the doctor said. Mm. And I said, you know, I know that you don't have periods, but um, even a period when I'm not pregnant is terrible. So this is going to be horrible. I need you to be here. And I remember it it being like a misunderstanding. Um, But we're also in in sex ed and in any health classes. uh, We are not taught anything in means of creating life, caring life, birthing life, whether it's giving birth dead or alive. Like we are not told any of these details. We are just told if you have unprotected sex, you will either get an STD or you will get somebody pregnant without meaning to, instead of talking about like purposefully getting somebody pregnant. Um, it's just a lack of, of education. And I don't know, I don't know where we change that. It's really frustrating. Yeah. I, so the common denominator between what I'm sharing and what you just shared about your husband's experience is that the, the way the conversation was had, right? His recollection of what the doctor said is what set his expectation. So if there's one place for this thing to start changing is in the way that medical professionals are trained in having these really complex and delicate conversations. Like regardless of how many times you have to have a conversation like that in a day, there's each and every conversation still needs to be tailored to the individuals that you're having that conversation with. I mean, I say this all the time. It's not my fault that you chose to be a doctor. That's a choice you made. And not only was that a choice you made, you chose to work in this particular sector of medicine to have these particular types of conversations. So it's none of my business if it sounds repetitive to you. That is your problem. I'm here because I am seeking help, counsel. This is obviously a very tense moment for a couple who's trying to conceive whether or, you know, to, to, to grow their family, because we're here to find out if our conception is viable or not. So we're, we're walking on eggshells a little bit. Like we're a little tense. We're very tense, quite honestly. And so even though we are the 150,000th patient that you've seen that day, a hundred and forty nine thousand times that you've had to have this conversation, you need to consider that it is a different family. It is a two different individuals who have just walked into your clinic who are talking to you right now. And you need to consider the fact that there this is a very delicate moment, even for them. Yeah. So. Let the other times that this conversation is had be a rehearsal for the next time that it's had. But to approach it in this um, conveyor belt type mentality is just not 
it's, it's just not the way. So to not be so careful with words that really shape one's experience, to me, that's just a lack of professionalism across any discipline where someone is dealing with somebody else in really vulnerable situations. Words matter. And the choice of words play a huge role in how these people's the you know the 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 people involved in this situation and the collective experience of folks because even though my wife might have heard those words and she didn't interpret it the same way that I did because I interpreted it the way that I did it ended up impacted her impacting her still in a very negative way and that could have changed the flavor of our relationship just because you were mindless to say some stupid words like that so all that to say, it needs to start from the people who are put who who are put in those positions, or rather, people who have chosen to put themselves in those positions to have these conversations with folks like me, with folks like you, with folks like people from both of our audiences who are trying to grow their families, and we go to them for their professional guidance and help and intervention. They need to be the ones to be hyper cautious what they say how they say it heck listen man for someone who hates waiting for a doctor to walk in because it just feels like 10 seconds is three hours if you need to take some time just because you came out of a really difficult situation or you know you're about to go into a really difficult situation and i have to wait another 10 minutes just so you don't say some stupid stuff like that to me, have me sit yeah. there for half hour. Take your time. Take your time. Think about your words. Think about what you're going to say, how you might say it, rehearse it, call a colleague, call a friend, call your spouse, Do look at a picture of your cat or your dog, your bird, whatever. Woosah. Have me in there foaming and and tripping and all of that stuff but i would rather go through that than for you to come and say something in a way that is going to be really difficult for me after you've said it right yeah i i'm i think there are so many terrible examples and i will say there are there are really great doctors. They're just, they seem so few and far between. And there's no like label on their website of like, this doctor is, you know, is calm with the way that she speaks or he speaks and is inclusive and is, you know, all of these things. We don't have those labels to like know that we're going to see somebody who's going to positively have an effect on us. Um, I think you might have just know, stumbled you know, on a business idea. A, a yeah. Business. Well, and, and it's, it's, it's sad because that's how I got started being a miscarriage doula was that nobody told me what to expect, what was going to happen to my own body. And mm. it's like, you're talking about like your wife and, and having respect for the trust that she gives you and her body. Like as a female, I didn't have trust in my own body because I didn't know anything about it. Nobody mm. told me what was going to happen. So then I felt betrayed by my body. And so like, how, if I feel betrayed by my body, can I trust it or, you know, have my husband trust me in my body. Like it, it, there's so many layers to it. And I think, um, the care that we get is definitely important. I would have rather somebody scared me with the truth than told me it was going to be a heavy period, which is what we hear a lot as women. Um, 
or like what my husband heard before he asked if he could go play golf that day was our doctor said it's going to be a really bad day. Mm. And that's stuck with us ever since. It's been almost five years. And we remember him saying it's going to be a really bad day as if the miscarriage would be quick, as if there would be no recovery, as if it was just that there's a crappy day, like not that we were losing our child or, you know, going even deeper, you know, nobody asks. So how do you view this? Do you feel like you're losing a baby? Do you view this as losing a pregnancy? Asking the questions of where do you believe life begins? That way they could cater the conversation to you in how they speak to you about what's happening to you. Um, Instead, they use the word Bible or they say, you know, this happens all the time. It just didn't stick, which is a crazy word to use when talking about pregnancy. Um, So language definitely matters and and it definitely sets the precedent, but you know, you sharing how after those couple of days, you guys had that, you know, brawl out fight going kind of back and forth of, of how you're feeling. That also probably felt really good to get those emotions out in the open with each other. And it's really great that you did work through that. I know that was probably a really hard day and it's obviously stuck with you. Um, but even though you didn't communicate for a few days, you did after that. Yeah, we did. And we had really honest conversations, difficult conversations, um, necessary conversations about what she was feeling, what the experience was like for her, um, and where my short-sightedness um, impacted how she was not able to grieve the way that she wanted to. Um, I learned just by virtue of having the conversation what I could have done better and what I would do better if the event were to repeat itself, never hoping that it would, um, but hint, hint, it did. So, yeah, we those conversations were necessary and it did feel good it felt like okay she was opening up to me she was understanding where or she was hearing at least where I was coming from and we both we both respected and understood each other's frustrations Um, even though by just the flavor of the conversation it was just entirely on me to take full responsibility for how I handled or mishandled, you know, my, my behavior. Cause she needed time to grieve. She needed time to process. And my wife, when, when she needs time to grieve and process, she caves inward. I'm an external processor. She is very much an internal processor and like at baseline and something like this just gets her deeper into her internal processing. And I felt like she was slipping away from me, which was not the case. She was just going into what's natural to her in order to process so that when she reemerges, we could have a healthier conversation. But I didn't know that. I didn't understand that at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And so after after your first miscarriage, um, uh, did you guys go straight into trying to conceive again? Did you take some time while she did process? Um, what did the, the months after the miscarriage look like? Yeah, we took some time afterwards and we kept the conversation fluid and open. 
do you want to keep trying again? And it was a resounding yes for both of us. And so just like the first time, we were like, we're not going, we're not going to try to um, time it this time around. I said to her, like, I can't, I can't do that again. You know, so let's just let it happen. If it happens naturally, then it happens naturally. Um, and we'll just, we'll just take some pressure off of us. Now, having gone through the first miscarriage, the expectations, the excitement, all of that stuff was, it was a little tempered this time around, you know? Um, after the first miscarriage, I took the onesie and I put it in the drawer. And I was like, I can't see this onesie now. So I put it in the drawer. When she told me she was pregnant the second time, the onesie came back out. But the level of excitement for seeing it was not the same. I was just like, okay, now I have an opportunity to feel connected again. But it just felt weird. Now that I'm thinking about it, that onesie was not for this second baby. It was for the first one. So all of that was just, you know, playing in the background. There was no... There was no corner in my thinking that even considered the possibility that we would have a second miscarriage because this was, this was it. Like that was it. Um, Funny story. My wife and I had betted a hundred dollars that our first baby on the gender of our first baby. She was like, it's going to be a boy. I said it was going to be a girl because I wanted a girl first. And when we found out that the, I think our first miscarriage, I think the first one was, uh, was it, did we know the, I don't remember now if we, if we knew if it was a boy or a girl. Um, but, you know, all of that just sort of went down the drain. It was like, okay, we're not, we're not doing this nonsense anymore, right? But this time around, I was like, man, I am finally going to have my girl. Like, I am going to have my girl. I had this one vivid dream where I saw myself in a delivery room, what seemed like a delivery room. I had never been in a delivery room before, so don't ask me how I knew it was a delivery room. But in the dream, (laughs) it was a delivery room. And I saw someone who looked like my wife. And she was giving birth. But I couldn't really see her face. In the dream, it just felt like that was my wife. And this baby was my baby. And someone was getting ready to to grab the baby as the baby was coming out. And I was trying to get there fast enough so I could be the one to hold my baby. But the person held on or, or caught the baby as the baby came out. And then as I got there, the person placed the child in my hands. And in the dream, it was a baby girl. The most beautiful blue eyes I have ever seen on a human being. And it was a white baby girl in the dream. And even though I'm a black man and my wife is a black woman, in that dream, that baby was mine. And I held that baby and I just started crying and I woke up 
with tears in my eyes, like literal tears in my eyes. And I was like, my God, I am having a baby girl. I am absolutely having a baby girl. So this obviously happened after my wife told me she was pregnant the second time. Then we went to get the pregnancy confirmed. And it was our second miscarriage. Mm. And I felt like someone took a knife and just ripped my chest wide open and took their hands and took my heart out and just ripped it out of my chest. Because this can't be happening a second time. I was supposed to have a baby girl. My dream gave me the indication. And I'm not even one of those people that's like, yo, if this happens in a dream, then it's true. It just felt too real for it to not be true. So when I woke up from that dream, I just had the unwavering belief that that was my baby girl. So when we find ourselves at the clinic again for the DNC, this time I'm sitting there and I have more like questions and I'm just in a different space than the first time. Um, and I think I shared this with you. I'm now reflecting on the first experience with our first miscarriage and everything that my wife had gone through and everything that perhaps she was feeling that I'm not feeling, or maybe was it different? Or, I mean, I'm having all of these questions bouncing around my head and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, I can't believe that we're not, that, that we're here again. And so all of the God questions started to come out. Like, why are you doing this to us? Is it something that, you know, I did, I started to think back on part of the reasons why my ex fiance and I had ended so badly, you know, cause I messed up in that relationship. I hurt her very deeply in that relationship. Could it be that this is what I'm now paying for? And now that you know how much I want to have kids, you know how much we want to have kids. And now both of them, the first two, you've taken away from us. Like I was pinning that on him, you know, and all of these, all of these questions. And like I said earlier, my professional, my profession is to provide, my profession is to provide, you know, is to be like a, a spiritual uh, presence for people who are going through really difficult times. So I'm having these conversations with myself while I'm also trying to chaplain myself through these conversations. And it was just a whole mess. I was an emotional mess this second time around because now I was feeling a connection because of a dream, because of, you know, the expectation that this thing was only supposed to happen to the first one and not the second one, like all of those things are at play. And now we're here again. So now the experience was totally different from the first one. I actually hitched my wagon to this pregnancy and it felt like it was being taken away from me. And I was just distraught. 
And did it feel like because it was kind of flipped to where you were expecting it the first time, so this time it felt like a little bit more blindsided, did you feel or or was your wife's experience more so like she expected it this time because it had happened before? Yeah. Or was it also the same level of being blindsided? I think she she had a feeling that this pregnancy, that that pregnancy was also not viable. I wouldn't let myself, I wouldn't let myself accept that because that was not the expectation. That was not the case for this second pregnancy. Again, she's healthy. I'm healthy. That one was just a, the first one was just a, the exception to the rule. A rite of passage. It was a rite of passage. Right. As the doctors sometimes will pass off. Which is, it's so stupid, man. I know. It's just like. I'm there with you. If there are any doctors who are listening to this and you've said these words to people, you know, like you work in this area, you say these words to people, just, just make a commitment right now for you to really think deeply about how you're going to approach this next conversation with someone. Unfortunately, that you have to, but make a commitment that you will approach a similar conversation with someone in a totally different way. Just make the commitment that every person that comes to your office, to your clinic, is as if your own child, if you have children, or your own best friend's kids, or somebody who you really love and care about, you wouldn't say rite of passage to. You wouldn't say, right. don't, don't be surprised if it doesn't stick. You wouldn't say you're just going to have a really bad day. You wouldn't say those things. Mm-hmm. So if you wouldn't say those things to those people, don't say to the strangers that whose lives you are going to impact equally as. OK, so that's my TED talk. Thank you for attending. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't let myself accept the fact that this pregnancy was not going to go all the way. So my wife was more tempered, um, even though. I was excited, not as excited as the first, but I was still pretty excited, especially after that really vivid dream. And yeah, it was just uh, completely blindsided, completely blindsided by how it all turned out. And after the second miscarriage, did you guys see a doctor um, before trying to conceive again, or did you just kind of think, well, we just got to keep trying. Yeah, we, I think we were given the option of genetic testing and all of that stuff. And I said to my wife, you know, if you want to go ahead and do that, by all means. And she did do it. The result came back and I forget what the condition was, but one of those where the, the genetical composition was off and one chromosome was missing here. And so there's a scientific name for it. I just can't think of it right now. Um, That didn't serve as closure for me in any way, shape or form, because I just couldn't accept that we were here a second time. Um, So thankfully a really good friend of mine was getting married and the Dominican Republic and uh, he and his fiance at the time asked 
for me to officiate the wedding for them. So it was a really cool honor for uh, to, to do that. And so my wife and I, we took that as a vacation from trying to, you know, grow our family. And it came at the perfect time because it was right after the second miscarriage had happened. And we we're like, listen, we're going to go to the Dominican Republic. We're going to forget about all of this stuff. We're just going to yeah. go and hang out, have a good time, enjoy the beach, enjoy the weather, enjoy this wedding. We love these people. Like, we're just going to have a good time. And that's exactly what we did. Like, that is, that's exactly what we did. We went to DR. We had a great time. And coming back from DR, she was like, I think I'm pregnant. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. Here we go again. Like you just kind of got over the fear and like you were dealing with all of these emotions and you're like, we're taking a break. We're not dealing with this. And it's like, pregnant. yeah, <laughs> like a couple of couple Whirlwind. of months after DR, she was like, my period hasn't come. I think we're pregnant again. And I was like, OK, so this third time we were there was no excitement. There was very little emotion. There was great communication. Okay, so what do we need to do? Now I became the checklist person. When are you going to tell your doctor? Uh, when are you going to make the appointment? When is the appointment? Um, what do we need to do? I mean, just like boom, 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 boom. We go to the appointment. The doctor walks in. She does the ultrasound. Heartbeat. She measures, yeah, pregnancy is measuring great, baby's measuring X amount of weeks or whatever, expected due date, June, what was it, June, uh, like June 7th or June 11th or something like that. And we were like, oh, oh, wait, whoa, whoa, we have an expected due date? Like, this is real? And we hugged each other and it was like, okay, here we go. The rest of the time, I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop. That was going to be my next question is if you, if the fear ended there, because whenever I talk to people about pregnancy after loss, um, it is, I, I, I tell people it's the scariest time. It, it's not fun. It's not, it's, it's not at all. We, so we did not, I also want to say this, the first two times that we were pregnant, for fear of a miscarriage, we didn't tell people that we were pregnant. So also consider the fact that going through both of these experiences, we were grieving, my wife in particular was grieving the loss of these two, the first two pregnancies by herself. I, I grieve the loss of the second pregnancy for reasons I already explained by myself. Right. So no family knew, no friends knew. We had fallen into the camp of staying quiet about pregnancy loss because you don't want people to know that you've gone through this thing, right? There, there's a level of, there's a level of 
stigma and, and shame that is attached to something that is so common, which is so ironic to me. <laughs> I mean, so, it, it blows my mind sometimes. It's like how crazy it is. So this thing is very common, so common that people can talk about it as like, you're going to have a bad day. Okay. But it's not common enough for people to openly talk about how common it is to me that just the math is not mathing in this one. So, um, so I just want to throw that into, into the conversation because we ended up playing into that dynamic, that social dynamic. We didn't say anything to anybody. And I had to carry that. I had to carry that alone for, for a while, for a really long time. Um, so when we got pregnant with our firstborn, once we came out of the anatomy scan, which was when we both finally allowed ourselves to feel excitement about the pregnancy. Once I saw my little man moving and giving us an absolute show during that anatomy scan, I was like, I can't believe I'm finally going to be a dad. To this day, I don't remember the walk from the train station to my place of work because I was just on cloud nine. I think I might've floated the whole time. I don't think my feet touched the ground <laughs> because I was just so excited. Like, I can't believe this. And my wife gave me the little cutout of the ultrasound and I just had it and I'm walking and I'm just looking at it. I think I might've like walked through traffic or something. I, I was not aware of my surrounding because I was just looking at this, this figure on, on this glossy piece of paper and I'm like, that's my son. Like, that's my son. And he has all his limbs and all his org organs are developing great. And he got a big head like his daddy. I mean, the whole nine, <laughs> the whole nine. I'm like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. So, yeah, it was after the anatomy scan. We finally, finally give ourselves permission to share the news with other people, to feel excited you know, start working on nursery and, and, um, registry list. And I mean, the, the, the whole nine after the anatomy scan. Yeah. And I know that you've talked about your miscarriages on your podcast. So at what point, because you hadn't shared in real time, at what point did you share with people in your life that you had experienced two losses before that pregnancy? I think, I think sometime after, I don't, hmm, I think it was, it might've been, it might've been after our third pregnancy that I started telling a few people that we had had two prior miscarriages. I think I might have told one person, this family that I'm really close with, um, after the second miscarriage, because their son, who's a really good friend of mine, he and his wife had also experienced a pregnancy loss. And so we were able to relate, you know, in, in that regard. But that was it. So there weren't 
and I am really close to my sisters and I have some really close friends and they, they did not know. I just, I just couldn't tell them. I couldn't tell them because my wife made it, you know, out of respect for her, it was, listen, I don't want people asking me questions. I don't want people looking at me a certain way. And so, yeah, even though I wanted to, and this is yet another conversation that she and I had, particularly when we started trying for uh, a second child, I said to her, you can't keep cutting off my avenues of release because if I don't have anybody to talk to, then that's not very helpful to me. Like I understand how you feel about it, but I also have feelings about what we go through as well. And it can't just be about people not looking at you a certain way. You're not considering the effects of that for me. So I need you to, I need you to be okay with knowing that I will be talking to people about this in the event that it happened again. And that's a conversation that I remember having with her explicitly after our third miscarriage. And so after your, your first son was born, getting pregnant again, was that just as fearful? Did you feel like, okay, well, we've had a, a living child now, so we are feeling pretty comfortable in pregnancy. You know, what was that like to be pregnant after loss, after loss? Yeah, we, um, after our firstborn, I was like, yeah, we are on a hot streak now. Like, there's no way we're going to hit the reset button. It just didn't feel plausible. It didn't feel likely. You know, if things were misaligned before, this pregnancy, this child, this birth, he must have left everything aligned. All of our ducks are in a row now. So whoever's going to come after him, smooth sailing from here on out. And obviously that was not the case. The third miscarriage was the most traumatizing because it happened at home. And it took me a really, really, really long time to accept how paralyzed I felt as I was watching my wife writhing in pain on the floor of our bathroom and I couldn't do anything to help her. Like I couldn't do anything to, to soothe her pain. I couldn't say anything. Like I was just there. I felt so useless as she was just, and there was just blood here, blood there. And I was just horrified. I was absolutely horrified that morning we're getting ready as any other morning our son was probably oh what juju was probably a little over a year old i want to say and she just said to me i mean she just screamed she didn't say it she screamed from downstairs it's happening and boom i come running downstairs Again, I don't remember running down the stairs. I might have just jumped from the top to the bottom step. I don't, 
but I got there in a flash and I just saw her on the floor and there was just blood all over the place and she was just crying and I was like oh my god so I went into action because little man was upstairs and he had started to wake up and so I was like okay I gotta go drop him off at my in-laws house so my in-laws live not so far from us got him ready got him in the car and the most gut-wrenching thing was to say to my wife who was on the floor in pain, excruciating pain, crying, like crying, like I've never seen her cry before. Babe, I'll be back. And I had to leave her so I can take our son over to my in-law's house because that was just too much. He, he, he did not deserve to hear any of that, to see any of that. He didn't deserve any of that. So I had to leave her. Um, and like I said, my in-laws don't live too far. They live about 10 minutes away. So those were the longest 20 minutes of my life at that period because I didn't know what I was going to walk in. I don't know. I didn't know what I was going to walk in on when I came back home. So again, nobody knew that we were expecting so here we are going through this really difficult moment. And as I'm dropping my son off to his grandmother, who could have been a really good support. Listen, I have great in-laws. I love my in-laws. They are great people. No problem relying on them. They could have been a great support. But because of the external and internal pressures of how this whole conversation happened and is perceived on a larger scale, we didn't even tell our most intimate circle of support system that we were expecting. So now I have to be normal. I have to be, I, I, I can't give off the impression that my wife is on my bathroom floor at our house with blood everywhere as she is passing a pregnancy in our bathroom. Like I can't yeah. let my, my, my body language, I can't say anything. I can't let my facial expression, I can't do anything out of the ordinary that would alert her that something is going on because in her mind, I'm just dropping him off. My wife has already gone to work and I'm on my way to work. That's hard. And it, it is hard because in the moment you're feeling like I can't tell anybody about what's going on. Um, and you don't really have time to process how helpful it could be to tell somebody, you know, you're just kind of in the thick of it. Um, and I imagine it was so scary leaving her there because like you said, you didn't know what you were coming back to, but you also don't fully know what to expect in that situation. No. And so you have no idea what's coming, no idea what's happening. Um, you know, blood is, I think anybody who sees blood, you automatically are like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. And and your brain just goes into trauma mode where you're trying to just fix a problem that you don't know how to fix. And it's really hard. Absolutely. And that's, that was my, at that moment, I felt like, like I said, I felt so useless because I couldn't do anything. 
And again, the irony of this is professionally, I step confidently in spaces and situations where I don't have to do anything. In fact, that is the reason why I'm there, because I don't have to do physically do anything. In that particular moment, all I wanted to do was something to be able to, you know, I couldn't get her off the floor because she wanted to be on the floor because the floor was cold and the way her body was feeling, she needed to be on a cold surface. I couldn't stop the process that was happening because the process needed to happen. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. And then she threw me a lifeline. Can you please go get that fan that's in the next room? Oh, my God. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. And I ran in and I grabbed that fan and I plugged that fan in and I turned it on. And I put I must have positioned that fan and repositioned that fan in like five or six different directions by not even moving the thing. But in my mind, I'm thinking that I'm like creating the fan on the spot just because I was able to now do something for her. Right. And I just laid on the floor next to her. And we just looked at each other and we just cried like babies. We both just cried. And we cried and we cried and I held her as much as she wanted me to, to, to hold her. And we just laid there. And then when when it was all over, she was like, I need to go upstairs. I said, you go upstairs, do whatever you have to do. I helped her up the stairs. Uh, I think she went in and showered just to clean up. And then she laid in bed. And then I came back downstairs and I walked into the bathroom again. And I was just like, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I just started cleaning up. You know, you're unlocking um, my own memories, which obviously never leave me, but it, it now makes sense. I remember apologizing to my husband for asking him to go get different things for me. Like I wanted a cold washcloth and he went and got it for me. I wanted Gatorade because I thought I needed to hydrate. Um, I asked him to go to the store to get adult diapers at three o'clock in the morning and felt terrible that he was going out to the store. And he didn't complain about any of it. And that's, you know, it's giving me the perspective of like, he just wanted to do something. And so he would jump at the chance whenever I told him what I needed. Um, I, I, I remember having a lot of empathy for my husband in that very similar moment that you're talking about where I had my miscarriage in the bathroom. I felt most comfortable um, in the bathroom. I didn't really want to leave. It was terrible. He had to clean up a lot of blood. And I, you know, at the time couldn't, fully understand how he was feeling. I didn't check in with him. I didn't even think to check in with him. But afterwards, when we talked about it, he told me, he said, it, it felt like I was watching somebody hurt you really, really bad. And I could just stand there and watch. Mm. I couldn't do anything mm -hmm. to help. And it, I know that that really changed a lot for him. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure that you experienced this with watching your wife uh, now birth your, your two children. It's almost like you know how to support her differently. I, I don't know if you guys created that communication on another level of like, I always thought my husband would be terrible in the delivery room because he's just not generally a really good support person. Just he, he's quiet. He doesn't know what to say. So he kind of keeps to himself. Um, but because of our miscarriages, he 
he stepped right up. He knew exactly how to support me in really difficult moments. And it's a sad way to learn a lesson. Um, but it, it did make us stronger in some of those um, harder moments. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The level of emotional intimacy that my wife and I achieved as a result of these really devastating circumstances has really changed the way that we see each other, the way that we continue to communicate with each other um, on a daily basis, because there is nothing for me, there is nothing more there's nothing more my wife can give me or do to convince me anymore that she loves me or that she is committed to us and our family. I've seen what she's gone through. And part of the conversations that, that I've had with her is to ask her, are you willing to put your body through that again? Like, you don't have to, especially after our firstborn. I was like, listen, I understand that we want to give him a sibling. I understand that you feel very strongly about him having a sibling since you know what it's like to be an only child for a very long time and you don't want that experience for him. I get all of that. But do you understand that we have a history now? And do you want to put your body through this stuff again? You know, and part of me started to feel guilty that I wasn't even more forceful in trying to convince her otherwise. You know, part of me felt guilty for not saying, you know what, I understand this is what you want, but you can't get this without my collaboration. And I'm not willing to give that to you just because I don't. So it's this moment of, it's this moment of we, we have to come to, to a deeper level of understanding and of com not even compromising, but this deeper level of intimacy that allows us to have these really difficult conversations, right? I'm completely aware that we live in a time in our society right now where political leaders are regulating and legislating uh, what a woman can and can't do with her body. And that is a thing. And women have the right to do what they want with their bodies. That is a thing. I completely get that. This experience taught me, though, that for me and my wife, it's not that simple. It was not that simple as this is her body and she makes a it's not that simple because I'm invested in this also. This is something that will impact the both of us in ways that we are aware of. And obviously in ways that we're not aware of because we're not all knowing. So I needed, I, I wanted to gain the assurance from her that God, I wanted to get the assurance from her that if we were to go through these events again, 
I don't even know what I'm trying to say right now, Arden, to be honest with you. I feel like I kind of hear it as you wanted consent from both of you to move forward with creating another pregnancy and creating another life. Because of what we've gone through, you know? Right. And it wasn't just the consent of like, if she wanted to do it, great. It was more like you both had to be on the same page. Yeah, because I felt like I had, I was responsible for what was manifesting in her body. I felt responsible for that. When, when, especially that third miscarriage and how horrific it was and it looked and it felt, I came out of that and those moments when I was cleaning the bathroom, I was saying to myself in a small but really loud voice in the back of my mind, you did this. You did this. Because she couldn't have gotten pregnant without you. You did this. Even though she wanted to and you wanted to. You did this. And obviously I didn't do it. We both wanted to have kids. We both wanted to give our firstborn a sibling. But you did this. You are involved in what's going on here. You know, so... It, it it's very complex. It's very nuanced. It is extremely delicate, but this is making that decision. That is part of the reality, part of the possibility that we assumed once we once we made that that decision to try to have children a second time, or at this point now a fourth time. Right. And, and so um, after that fourth pregnancy and your third miscarriage, moving forward into another pregnancy, what was, what was that like and, and how was it, – it sucks to you know, even talk about like a fifth pregnancy. I know that was always a struggle for me whenever I would say, well, this is my second son but my fourth pregnancy. And so I, I recognize how terrible it is whenever you point out those things. Um, and, and how did it – how did it, well, we know how it came to be, but you know, like how did trying to conceive that conversation, obviously you guys decided to go forward. So getting pregnant again, what was that? Like, I imagine even more disconnected than maybe you had previously been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, after that one, we had spoken about after the third miscarriage, we spoke about, okay, this next time is going to be the last time. If if we can't get if we if we don't if this pregnancy doesn't go all the way, then then that's it. Like that that's it. Um, one thing I forgot to mention, I believe, I believe the third miscarriage ended up revealing that that baby would have been our baby girl. Wow. So that made it even more difficult to process through for me because I've always felt like I want to be a girl dad and I am so thankful for my boys. 
My firstborn is going to be three. And as of today, my secondborn is two months old. Just celebrated two months old. And I can't tell you how proud I am when the four of us were recently uh, watching uh, the NBA playoffs on, on my laptop. And my wife has the baby on her chest. I have my mini me right in between my wife and I, and his head is leaning on me. And I have my arms wrapped around my, my wife. And then I'm just looking at the scene and I'm just like, Oh my God, like this is beautiful right here. Like this is complete. This is good. So I, I don't want to give the impression that I'm not satisfied or no, I am. I am blessed oh. to have my boys. I always felt like I said in the beginning, I thought that my first child would be a girl because I wanted to be that extra girl dad, you know, by the samurai sword and the ninja stars and stuff like that. You know, the threat and the boy when he comes to ask for, uh, you know, to take her out for prom, you know, like that kind of stuff. The daddy uh, daughter dance, you know, all of that jazz, you know, intimidating guys. So I want to, uh, my name is Reggie and I want to, no, 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 you can't date my daughter. You know, like I wanted to be that extra guy. So now I'm going to have to be that for my sons in a different way. But yeah, so that was really difficult to deal with. So my wife and I were like, this, this is it. After this, if it doesn't happen, then we're just, we're just going to stop. Um, sure enough, she got pregnant and we went to, oh, and this was another tough one. I, I almost forgot about this. She sends me a video, a short video from the ultrasound. The young lady was gracious enough to pretend like she didn't see my wife but she purposely left the screen turned so that my wife can record a video of our little blob with a heartbeat on the ultrasound monitor. So my wife takes a video and she sends it to me and she's like, look, babe, uh, we got a heartbeat. Um, and they want me to come back in like a week or so just to, to confirm that everything is still going okay, but we got a heartbeat. So I was like, oh man, this is awesome because there's no way, there's no way God would let us go through this again, a fourth time. I even remember saying that to my friend. I was like, bro, there's no way that this is going to end in a miscarriage again because God ain't going to do that to me, man. Like he can't, he knows we've been through too much already. Um, this goes to show that even the person who works in the religious spiritual field has questions and doubts and all of that stuff too. So I just want to put that out there. Um, so she sends me this video and then she's like, look, doesn't it look like a fish? And I was like, Oh shoot, that's my little Nemo. Cause it looks like <laughs> it looked like Nemo at the beginning of the movie when he was just a little, you know, egg. So I was like, Oh man, that's, that's my little Nemo. And we go to the appointment a week later and I went with her this time and the doctor walked in and she checked and then she gave us that look, that all too familiar look. 
And she said, I am so sorry, guys. I have been doing this for a really long time. And I'm not seeing this. This doesn't look like it's a viable pregnancy. My wife was, she was the rock. She was like, yep, I had a feeling that this wasn't going to happen. And as soon as the doctor walked out, I just put my head on her shoulder and I just bawled. I was like, I, I can't believe we're here again. At that point, I was just like, this is a cruel joke. This is an absolute cruel joke from the powers that be. I, it, it doesn't make any sense. I'm a healthy guy. She's a healthy woman. It shouldn't be this hard. It really should not be this hard. So, you know, we, um, she comforted me. She was like, babe, it's going to be okay. You know, it's, it's just sad that we know that this is going to be it. So settled ourselves down. We went to eat. And, and this was immediate. Like we went to eat, we had dinner plans, we went to eat and we're sitting there and it's like, how are you feeling right now? Like, where are you right now? And we both said the same word incomplete. Mm -hmm. So we both agreed that something felt missing, but we didn't want to jump on that and say, so then let's just try again because this was still fresh. Several hours ago, I was crying because the doctor said this was yet another non-viable pregnancy, our fourth miscarriage. So we're like, we're going to leave it open-ended and we'll check in regularly, but we're not going to put any stressors on us to do anything. Just leave it open-ended. We checked in on each other again, and she was like, we kept coming back to the same word, incomplete. We checked in with each other again, came back to the same word, incomplete. So then we said, okay, we're obviously feeling like we want to try one more time, even though we know that we might experience a fifth miscarriage. But I said to her, our pattern has been two miscarriages, one child. We've just had another two. Who's to say that we're not going to get it? So the way my mind was functioning, now I was teetering on the verge of, is this lunacy or am I being responsible? By even entertaining this conversation, am I being responsible? Am I being a loving husband? Am I being a responsible parent to my child? Am I being a responsible person of my own account? Am I really trying to go for something? Am I trying to will something into existence? You know, you have people who talk about like speaking things into existence. Like, am I trying to do that? And if I am, at what cost? Am I willing to see my wife go through some shenanigan like that again? Am I really going to invite her to, uh, to do this again, knowing very well that I mean, we've had several miscarriages. We had one that passed at home. Who's to say that this one is not really just going to take her 
health into a different direction? Like, am I really willing to do that? Are we, is that what we're saying? So that was the flavor of the conversations that we, that we were having and that I was having with myself because what never went away was the sense of I am a participant in the pain that my wife has felt physically. And every time that she talks about how much her body has changed after all of these pregnancies and how she doesn't feel pretty anymore and how she doesn't do this, how she doesn't in the back of my mind, I'm like, Kel, you did this. Like you've contributed Mm -hmm. to this. So sad. You know, like, so it, it, man, it's, um, I don't think I've ever said this out loud. So me saying it out loud right now is, um, is quite the experience, but I totally feel responsible for the hurt and the pain, the physical hurt and pain that my wife has felt, even though that's produced the two most beautiful creatures, the two most beautiful beings, the two boys who complete my life. Um, you know, it's just, yeah, that, that, that's where I'm at right now. I think it's, you know, as a woman, it's really validating in a way to hear you say that, because I know that whenever I talk to women after miscarriage, they feel responsible. They feel like they need to apologize to their partner. They feel like they've inflicted loss in their partner's life or they're unwilling, um, not unwilling or unable to give their partner a child. And so I know that women feel that. So to hear you as a male partner saying that, I think that that's, um, I don't know, it's oddly validating and like healing that it, it isn't just us as females that feel that way. You know, I can understand how you would feel that way. Um, although I, I think, you know, and I hope, you know, on some level that of course, that it is not your doing and, and anything like that, but it's hard not to feel responsible whenever you are half of what has created these pregnancies and these losses. Um, it's also hard when you don't really have explanations. And so you kind of have to come up with your own, um, reasoning or your own causes. And that's, that's really hard too. Um, and I imagine as uh, having two boys now and then having the dream about the girl, um, I know that you said you're not like a person who has dreams and things come true, but I wonder if it's always just felt like your soul is like connected to a little baby girl somewhere. It's like hard to find where she is, but it's so interesting that in your dream, it was a little white baby girl with blue eyes because that's so specific. Um, so it's interesting. I wonder in what avenue, maybe you're a father figure to a little girl that looks like that, or, you know, maybe that resembles or symbolizes something, you know, it's, of course we want to think that, but it could also just be an ice dream. Yeah. So interesting. You say that because as you're talking, my cousin has a daughter who is, uh, she is two years old and, My cousin's husband is white. And so their baby is mixed, but she's more on the lighter side than the darker side. And so every time she comes to the house, she could get away with murder. And I'm like, baby, it's okay. Like you, you do what you gotta do (laughs) because she's a little princess. And 
I don't know how or when, but early on when she first started coming, she did not relate very well to me. But then something happened. Something, there was a switch that flipped. And now when she sees me either on FaceTime or when she comes over to the house and I'm like, hey, can I get a hug? And she just comes and runs to me and lays her head on my shoulder and I am in absolute paradise. I'm like, there is no yeah. better feeling. Like, I don't know what it's like to be a girl dad, but what I feel when I hold Ari in my arms and I'm carrying her and she just puts her cheek up against my cheek, I don't feel that with my sons. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, a, it's a different yeah. connection. It's a different bond. So it's interesting you say that because I'm like, well, she doesn't have blue eyes but she definitely is light-skinned, so who knows? Yeah. Maybe you had, like, a filter on in your dream, and it looked it looked like blue Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh. I, um, I did ask my audience some questions, and so I've been trying to look to see if there's – you covered so many things that I know people wonder about the male perspective – um, I think, I know for me, you cleared up a lot of things that, you know, my husband is very quiet. And so I would ask something one time, but if he wasn't open to wanting to talk about it, I kind of back off. Um, and so it's interesting to kind of hear maybe some of the thoughts or feelings that are going on behind the scenes. Um, I think, and I, I do want to say also that you wrote a really great blog post that will be live too. And so we'll make sure to link it because I think that um, it really does a good job of listing out how to support the male partner, which is something we, we didn't get to touch on as much because we're talking about your experience. Um, but I wonder, you know, somebody who is, say there is a male partner that is like your wife and is really closed off and doesn't really want to talk. Um, is there anything that you would recommend doing for that partner? Is it worth it to keep trying to talk about it? Or is it kind of just waiting and seeing if they want to speak about it? If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think that it definitely, the short answer is yes. I think it's definitely worth trying to get him to, or invite him to talk about whatever he wants to talk about. Because what's at play in the larger context is the socialization of men. What was true for me in those experiences is that I didn't feel um, empowered. It didn't feel like I didn't feel like I would be in my place to say it this way. If I were to open my mouth and say, hey, I'm having feelings, too. The only reason why yeah. I said those things to my wife was because there was a sense of finality and I were trying to grow our family. And so if this was going to be our final pregnancy and I didn't want our final pregnancy, if it ended in miscarriage again, for me to have to deal with the consequences of that in silence like I did the previous ones. I think my approach would have been different had we not had this finality sense to it. And I think I would have still kept going along with her preference to not say anything. So in, in this dynamic of 
starting a family, I feel my experience has shown me that I'm already at a disadvantage from the perspective of, from the societal perspective, from the medical perspective, and that my experience is not really what, what takes center stage. And even to talk about it in terms of what takes center stage is problematic because it's not a competition about, you know, who gets the spotlight more than the other. It's a matter of highlighting and, and including and having the awareness that it's not just the mom who is entering this journey, but it's also 50% of the equation as well. She's just 50. There's another 50%. So both of them are experiencing this. And I think something that our listeners should be able to come away with after this conversation is that what impacts one impacts the other. So if one benefits from a level of, of attention and support and resources, the other one will benefit from that also. If the expectation is poorly set for one, the other one is going to be impacted by that also. So there's all of that at play in that I felt that I couldn't say anything because the superstar was my wife. And um, as you hear my son in the background <laughs> having a really tough time. Um, so because of that, I took a back seat, not because I wanted to, but I felt like almost forced to take a back seat out of honor and respect for my wife's experience. I started opening up about my experiences and advocating for the father to be considered in this whole trajectory also because there were more times when I felt excluded and left out, you know, in the blog, I mentioned the experience of one of my uh, wife's DNCs at the clinic where the physician didn't even acknowledge my, my presence and my existence. And that really marked me because that woman did not get pregnant by herself. And I completely am aware of the fact that not every male partner is involved. I'm completely aware of the fact that there are guys who are just absolute douchebags. Like, I get that. I understand that. But that does not negate the fact that it was that guy's sperm who got that woman pregnant. So yeah. his experience needs to be included validated needs to be brought into the equation as well. So in these environments where, like I said, the patient is in these medical environments, the patient is obviously the woman who's pregnant, the woman who's carrying, and she deserves all of the resources and all of the attention even after my wife gave birth to both of our sons, and this happened for both of our sons, and the next day visit at the pediatrician's office, she gets screened for postpartum depression and for postpartum support. Ain't nobody asking me any questions. 
Nobody cares about the guy who, I don't know, just happens to be the father of this kid. Especially if he's here, like I've been. So all of that communicates to me, right? If, if I was before coming on this, before embarking this journey to open up and to talk and to advocate for dads to also, you know, be included in this thing. It communicates to me that I'm not that important. Whatever feelings I may have, whatever thoughts I may have, whatever struggles I may be going through, they're not as important as hers. And so let me just coast back here in the background and let her, because she obviously needs most of the support, if not all of the support. And I'm just going to rely on the things that are normal to me as a man, which is keep it to myself, keep pushing, go to work, stay distracted, don't process my emotions, any of that stuff. Oh, but wait, the very society that I step into and I'm a part of every day is also telling me, process your emotion, don't be so... So this is, this is a part of, this is a reality for men. Right. This was my reality and it needs to be brought to light. Right. So I say all that to say, to respond more directly to your question, the guy who is more like my wife, who is like your husband, reserved, quiet, there might be more happening than just an unwillingness to not want to talk. There is a not knowing how to even talk, not knowing that he even has a right to say the things that he wants to say. There, there is a sense of safety that he perhaps needs to have to feel like he's not going to be ridiculed judged, looked down upon for saying what he might want to say. I mean, there's all of that. So creating an environment of safety for him, creating an environment of, of accepting of his acceptance of his experience, I think can go a long, long way.